Hey everyone and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. I am your host, Caleb Mason. No, I'm not. I'm just kidding. That that was a joke. That was me joking. <laughs> Caleb's not with me today as I'm recording this intro and outro. Um, my name is actually Todd Hicksonball, aka the Todd Father. And, uh, and I'm so glad uh, to be able to hang out with you today. Um, we have an interesting guest coming on a little bit later um, uh, by the name of Julian Guthrie. And, and I'm going to talk about her in a, in a second. But um, before we get to all of that, I wanted to thank you for all the support that we've been getting for the podcast. Um, love being able to interact with fans. Love being able to hear feedback. And, and just so grateful for that. And one of the best ways that you can do that for the show, actually is uh, by leaving a rating and writing review. Now, it's one of the ways that you can do that, but it also actually helps to um, be able to push uh, our podcast actually up in the podcast directories, whether it's the Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music or whatever it is. It gives us great feedback, and it also helps um, Apple and all those other places to see that, hey, people actually listen to our show. So, um, yeah go and and I would love for you to do that. It's actually really simple. All you have to do is go onto your podcast player, whichever one you use, and just simply click on the write a review or leave stars or whatever. I would love it if you would give us a five-star rating. That's the highest rating you can give, and it just makes my heart happy. But if you feel like we deserve a one-star rating because Caleb at some point in your past annoyed you, I'm also comfortable with that. I'm going to pick on him a lot because he's not here. Um, but anyways, I would just love it if you would leave a rating right review. The other thing that you can do is you can subscribe to the podcast. Now, subscribing does not mean that you're paying any money. As a matter of fact, it's totally free. I don't charge you any money for it because um, I'm a nice guy. And Caleb doesn't charge you any money for it. And neither do any of the podcast players. It's simply the best way to be able to make sure that you never miss another episode of the podcast. You'll get a little notification and it'll say, hey, the Learner's Corner has a podcast episode for you to listen to today. And you click on that bad boy, and you can listen to the doleful sounds of Caleb J. Mason's voice, because I know we all want to listen to more of Caleb Mason. I'm just a throw-in. I'm just, I'm the entertainment. I'm kind of like the joker that just kind of hangs out and and uh, just has fun over here. And, and, you know, Caleb's the real, the real person, you know, with those doleful sounds that, uh, that we get to hear from him every week. But anyways, go ahead, subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll never miss another episode. I'm being goofy today. That's okay. Um, but anyways, I have a resource for you, and I am really, really excited to be able to share it with you. It, it It's a book that has really, I, I know I mentioned it, um, I know I mentioned it before in, um, in our, our, uh, end of the end of the month episode that we did last month but um it's really it's really been fascinating me and i I re i I finished reading it and uh and i really i'm all about it and it's it's this book called sapiens and it's written um hold on i'm looking it up hold on people uh it's it's written by this guy uh still looking don't judge me um it's written by yuval noah harari and it's a great book. It's called Sapiens. And it really walks through actually the history of humankind. And it was super enlightening. This guy did incredible research. And uh, I finished it. It's a great read. Totally am loving that. I've been sharing it. It's, it's the book that I'm telling everybody right now to go ahead and read. And uh, I really think you should read it too. And so it's by Yuval, um, Yuval Noah Harari. Yeah. 
Go catch that. It's called Sapiens. Yeah, a brief history of humankind. So that's your resource of the week, your Learner's Corner approved resource of the week. Caleb's going to hate this when he listens back. He's going to go, dude, you were going crazy. Anyway, hi, Caleb. Um, so we have our guest today, Julian Guthrie. We're going to go and listen to this episode that we recorded with her. Really excited. Let's get into that right now. Well, Julian, we are so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thank you. I am I am very excited to be on with you. Yeah, and we're we want to get into uh, your book Alpha Girls here in just a moment. But before that, um, we would be remiss if we didn't ask you a little bit about your writing process as well, because that's something that both Todd and I are working to get um, to get to get better in as as well. And just the first thing that I wanted to ask you is what what are some of the skills that you have developed over over your time in in writing and even in journalism that have helped you become a more skillful writer well i really just kept at it honestly i was a reporter at the san francisco chronicle for 20 years and i literally wrote i think every day so i was doing daily journalism. And a lot of that time was spent in the newsroom uh, being being a general assignment reporter. So I was dispatched to cover, you know, floods and fire and mayhem and murder. And, um, and that really actually honed my writing skills because I had to write on deadline. And I remember I started out and like if it would be a Monday, you know, in the newsroom and I'd get an assignment, say, due by Friday. I remember how stressed when I was first starting out I would be. And then it would be, uh, oh, you have an assignment that's due Thursday or due Wednesday. And then and then it would be like, oh, this assignment is due. You get to the point where it's this assignment is due end of day today, you know, by 4.30 p.m. And so you really focus your mind on you go out, you do your, your reporting, you come back, you make your calls, you focus, 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 tune everything else out and you try to come up with, you know, great reporting that is accurate and then really good storytelling and good writing. So that was great training for me. And at the same time, starting, I guess, about eight or so years into my career as a journalist, I began to think about writing books. Um, so I was doing that on the side and literally just working every day on my writing. And you do hope that, you know, when you put in that sort of time and you have that sort of passion for it, that you get better at it, which is what I did. but it was just sitting down at that darn keyboard and staring at the blank screen uh, until, you know, you, you, until it wasn't blank anymore. And, but again, it was just working on it assiduously, just be constant in application. So that's what I would say. And then, and then, you know, being curious, naturally inquisitive is another key skill to being a writer um, I think of fiction or of nonfiction, but you have to be genuinely interested in people's stories. And so being inquisitive helped me um, and being open minded. You know, I didn't come at my stories with an opinion about, you know, this person is good. This is bad. It's just really listening to people's stories. And they're always more nuanced than you think. So that's what I would say kind of upfront to that question. Mm -hmm. Is there something uh, like how, how did that open mindedness develop develop in you? Or how did you develop that? 
Boy, that's a good question. I don't know. Is it like a state of mind or is it something that you learn? You know, Mm -hmm. I think it's actually, I think it comes, it's a perspective that you get when maybe I didn't have it in the beginning, but I definitely have it now where I know there are always um, far more than two sides to the story. And I know that those who are perceived maybe as um, the bad guys are not necessarily bad, or let's say um, this is a gender neutral thing, but um, you know, I've interviewed, I remember early on when I interviewed this guy who was, um, he was in Pelican Bay prison in, in Cal- Northern California and very high security prison. And he was in the um, isolation ward and he was a leader of the Mexican mafia and he got out of prison and I ended up interviewing him um, because the prison conditions there were under scrutiny. And I interviewed him and spent a couple of days in San Francisco just walking around with him. And he couldn't have been more polite to me. I wasn't in the game. But things like that just gave me perspective. On, and he, he was very respectful, um, <clears throat> you know, as long as you weren't in the life, as he said it. So each step of the way gave me perspective on how people live, what people are dealing with. Um, people's hardships and struggles, and you never know, you know, what what's going on in someone's life on any given day. So it gave me this this beautiful, privileged perspective that um, there are many many sides to people, and you should reserve judgment and just just start listening um, and thinking about you know the their lives and how the world looks to them. Um, so that I think the open mindedness came from from experience, from seeing so many different worlds and stepping into so many different worlds of, you know, of both extreme success and extreme um, deprivation, I would say. Mm-hmm. Something that you had mentioned a little bit earlier was moving from um, moving from writing primarily articles and maybe even uh, think pieces as well to writing books. What have you learned uh, to be the difference between knowing, okay, I, I think I have an article here, or I think this, I think this thing can actually become uh, an entire book. Well, there's a huge difference. This, this, the shared element is you have to have a great central character and by character, this is a real person, but I'm always drawn to stories by the people Um, I really like cool technology and the underdog stories and all that, but the people have to be those who I want to spend a lot of time with. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it's a matter of the difference between an article, even let's say a very lengthy multi-part series and a book is, is the duration, you know, by which you will spend the amount of time you're going to spend with this subject and these people. Do I, can I spend two years with these people and with this subject? Is it worth it? Will it have longevity? Um, I also think that, especially with the newspaper uh, media industry today, it's all about, you know, hits and clicks and eyeballs. And it's very, brevity is key and storytelling, um, except for a few a few mediums is is uh, getting shorter and shorter and briefer and briefer. And um, I really like getting into the authentic- authenticity of a story and of the people behind it. And you just can't do that in, you just have to have time for that. And also I found that you need to, you corroborate it by, you know, documentation, by photos, by 
you know, for every scene in the book that I write these reconstructive narratives, you need to um, interview, you know, six to 10 to however many people around them. So you start filling in these details and everybody has a memory is one of those elusive things as well, or colored things where you need to get all of these different perspectives. So while my training prepared me for the reporting and finding the characters and having a good sense of story. Um, journalism was a sprint and a book is a marathon. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I want to ask you about real quick before we dive into the book is kind of one, one of the more difficult parts of success is consistently maintaining success. Um, which it seems like you have you have ex if, have experienced with this being um, your fourth book, and then you've also been uh, nominated for multiple Pulitzers as well. What what has helped you maintain a high level of of excellence in your writing just over the long run? Well, that's very kind. Um, I appreciate that. I you know I really love what I do. I really love writing, and I constantly strive to get better and better at it. And um, I think it's, it is, you know, each, each book now is a whole new set of challenges that I can never predict. I could never have predicted the challenges of alpha girls when I got into the story. <clears throat> I thought I had dealt with these titans of industry and everything would be easy after that. But this presented a whole new set of, of, uh, of challenges to it. So I'm just always pushing myself to be better um, at word choice, at sentence construction, at um, you know how how quickly, efficiently I can work on a story or a book. Um, I think it's just having high expectations for my craft and having been at it a long time. And I'm, um, you know, I I'm a voracious reader and. So I, I aspire to, I see a lot of beautiful language out there um, and great storytelling. So that also inspires me. But I think it's really comes from within. I, I push myself um, to, you know, to a very, very high standard or with, with goals that I have for myself that I really set for myself. And then you want to make your editor and your publisher and happy and you want to engage with your audience and have the story come to life. So you, you had mentioned that this one was a bit more, uh, you just faced some different challenges as opposed to some of your other writings. What were some of those challenges? I did. I did. Um, I have not blocked them out of my memory yet. No, just kidding. <laughs> they weren't that bad. No, so... And I can understand. I, I can understand now where these challenges came from, but they were very real at the time. I wanted to tell this story of these women who succeeded in this male-dominated industry of Silicon Valley of tech and venture capital. And I thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll tell their stories. And but I also want stories to be authentic, to be real, to be relatable, to be real life. And what was so hard was to get the women of my book to be candid about their shortcomings and their missteps mm -hmm. and the insults and injuries um, that, you know, happened to them in their career. And because 
they are have been so much about wearing this kind of Teflon suit and being unflappable and uh, expecting kind of perfectionism among themselves that they had a very hard time showing their vulnerabilities and their weaknesses and when they were betrayed. It's interesting because I had, you know, having interviewed, say, Larry Ellison, the co-founder of Oracle Corporation, you know, this trailblazing, swashbuckling, you know, guy, he, you know, he would talk openly about his imperfections and vulnerabilities. I think it kind of rounds men out in some way, some men who are at the top of their game or their field, whereas women who have succeeded have done so by always being strong. And mm-hmm. so it's, it was very interesting. So it was pulling teeth to get the true stories, the real stories of what happened in their lives. I mean, for the most part, you know, the the success stories are the strongest part. And I wasn't going after, uh, you know, I wasn't going at it in a gotcha way at all as a journalist. I just wanted to have um, have the you know a real picture of what they went through because it wasn't easy for them. So that mm-hmm. was the biggest kind of surprise or challenge was there anything uh so so how what did that look like of getting them to open up and be vulnerable um it was a lot of conversations and it was a lot of me banging my head against the desk (laughs) just kidding it was um you know it was getting them to trust me i could show my previous work and say you know i needed so and so to tell me these stories um, to make it, you know, the the book that it became. And so I needed I needed to convince them to trust me with their story, and that telling the story honestly would benefit them as well. And um, because it's real and it's relatable and it's inspiring, but it's accessible too. Um, so it's just a lot of conversations, although sometimes, honestly, I couldn't, in one instance, and I don't want to name which name, but Mm -hmm. I couldn't get the real story. And I literally had to report around her, um, to get the real story. And then I went back to her and I said, you know, I understand you don't want to talk about this, but this is really important the way it went down and to discuss you know why and and it turned out okay but that was hard that was the hardest part these women are working in the industry today you know so they you know they have to network and deal flow comes through referrals a lot of time and still it's a male dominated industry so i can understand i can understand where they were coming from it didn't make my job any easier that's for sure but but we all persevered through it and um and i'm really glad that i did Mm-hmm. So you you alluded to this uh, earlier, but you talked about being attracted to the uh, the underdog stories and you know big seemingly impossible dreams and um, and even even going against the grain as well. What what has fueled that desire for you? What is what? What's what's made you want to go after those types of stories? Oh, um, I guess we all feel a little bit like underdogs or imposters, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, we have these dreams of, you know, you don't get your diploma or <laughs> whatever it is. But um, I don't know. I, I love the journey that people go on. And, 
you know, what is that journey and what are their goals and how do they get there? How do they get um, sidelined and what do they learn from that? I think the human drama is ceaselessly interesting to me. Um, I love these elements of the human spirit that we need to persevere through things to go from, you know, underdog to success. I'm always, I don't know why, what it is, maybe, you know, what it is about me, why I'm ceaselessly interested in those stories. Um, But I'm amazed at what people can accomplish uh, through creativity, through maybe technological breakthroughs, but through a force of will. You know, and that's what I'm drawn to. Alpha Girls was a very different type of underdog story, as it turned out. Um, very different model of how they succeeded. And so that was intriguing to me. It's underdog. There's technology. There's great, you know, history in the book. Um, but they had a different way of of succeeding and of prevailing. and. But they were definitely, you know, they were definitely underdogs. So that much is consistent. But then how they accomplished what they did is is very different from my prior from my reporting on on these other um, kind of game changers. What other common what what commonalities have you seen that leads to underdogs succeeding and and the impossible being accomplished? Um. I would say, you know, as I see it now, because of my reporting, I see there are different paths to succeeding. And the first model is the Larry Ellison, Elon Musk, um, even Peter Diamandis, um, the founder of the XPRIZE, who is the main figure of my last book, How to Make a Spaceship, you know, kind of standing on the outside of an an industry or an institution and, you know, making change happen, bringing an industry to life, not working within an existing system, not compromising, not backing down. And by the sheer force of their determination, you know, make something significant happen. So that's model one that I had learned about and seen. It's kind of this dream big, very inspirational story, but I think it applies to those rare um, trailblazers who are kind of born trailblazers, who it's like the 0.001% of us. And then with Alpha Girls, I learned a different model of perseverance that is, I think, again, much more relatable to most of us who are not titans of industry. And that is the successes were incremental, but these victories added up to something really significant. And I think it's a model for how the rest of us can you know, find ways to succeed and even to bring about change uh, in an industry that feels um, maybe like it's not welcoming to to us. So I saw these two different kind of methodologies, if you will, in terms of how people prevail, how people succeed. Um, But having, you know, again, having the passion and having the relentlessness, having the optimism and keeping eyes on the prize. Don't be, you know, um, set back by these small obstacles along the way really have this sense of uh, I'm going to get there and no one's going to stop me. And then different paths to, to achieve that. 
so the the next thing I guess that I that I wanted to ask you about is in in your most recent book, Alpha Girls. Um, it, it an example, a great example of what we were just talking about with underdog stories is, is is you tell that story in this book. And so, could you tell us just a little bit about each of each of those characters, Magdalena, uh, Mary Jane? How do you how do you pronounce? Is it uh, Teresa? How do how do you say that one? It sounds like that, but it's just Teresa. It's just Teresa. That is the <laughs> coolest spelling ever. And. And, and Sonia, I, I can you just tell us a little bit about the, like their story and why this is such an example of of, of overcoming obstacles, um, and then how that's significant. Oh, I would love to. Um, these women are really captivating characters. So um, MJ Elmore. So she. Mary Jane Elmore, she goes by MJ. MJ Elmore, she grew up in the Midwest, a very low income family, huge family. Her father was a middle school teacher and her mother worked at um, JCPenney at night. She worked the night shift. And anyway, MJ happened to be great at math. She makes it to Purdue. She comes west. She This is one of my favorite cinematic moments. She drives west in this old Ford Pinto rusted out floorboards. And when she takes that exit for Sand Hill Road, famous for entrepreneurs and venture capitalists, she can see the road rushing by below. And she gets a job at Intel and goes to Stanford. And she uh, becomes one of the first women in the United States to make it to partner at a venture capital firm. So um, that's MJ. MJ. She she was really propelled along by her aptitude in math, interestingly enough. It gave her a way of thinking um, that helped her um, analyze you know, her work at Intel without an engineering degree, and then later as a venture capitalist, but she also had really, really good judgment. There's Magdalena Yashil, who is from Istanbul, Turkey, who arrived in California with $43 to her name and nine gold bracelets to sell if she needed, and she never sold them. Um, she comes to Stanford. She gets an electrical engineering degree. She works the night shift in the computer center, and she goes on to work at a chip company and then um, become an entrepreneur. And she had a couple failures before she started finding success, and she was an early um advocate or guru even for shopping moving online and so she would appear on these shows with you know a young jeff bezos talking about yes people are going to buy things online and uh she became a successful entrepreneur and then she joined a venture capital firm and through her previous company she had met a young star rising star at oracle corporation Uh, named Mark Benioff. And one day she and Mark had lunch together in the Bay Area and Mark ran this idea by her, you know, wanted wanted her opinion on uh, the company that would become Salesforce.com. And, um, you know, so Magdalena became the first investor and the first board member in Salesforce and helped rescue the company when it was about potentially going to go under in the dot-com crash days, the dot-com bust days. So Magdalena, you know, played a key role in that. And again, a role that 
really hadn't been talked about too much. Um, and then Sonia Perkins from the South comes to Menlo Park, work, lands her dream job at Menlo Ventures on Sand Hill Road. And she has a lot of fun stories in the book, actually. She was very scrappy and kind of entrepreneurial as a kid. And she had gone to Harvard before she arrived at Menlo Ventures. And her investments would make the internet safer and more secure. Her story gets very, very personal as well as the other women, actually. And But I'll finish this. Um, so then we have Teresa Gao, who is the... Um, first-generation American daughter of Chinese immigrants and an overachiever from the get-go. And her father had told her early on um, that cheerleading is out for you, sports are in. And she got made it kind of out of this redneck, blue-collar town she was in and where her first job was flipping burgers at Burger King, makes it to Brown, uh, graduates magna cum laude in engineering, and comes to Stanford, works for a failed, kind of failed, it was it was an interesting company, um, dot-com startup, and uh, gets her MBA at Stanford and, and gets a job at a venture capital firm called Excel Partners. She's a partner track associate. And one of her first tasks is to entertain these two guys who are coming in because um, they have a new search engine. And she was to develop a rapport with them and then bring them to the partners meeting. And so there's a fun scene in the book about Teresa playing foosball with Sergey Brin. Uh, Sergey Brin and Larry Page were the two guys who were coming in to pitch Google. And there are lots of stories like that and, and how Teresa advances up the food chain, so to speak, and becomes a partner and chases down really hot deals from uh, from Facebook to Skype to Trulia to Imperva to Forescout um, and others and becomes today one of the most successful venture capitalists in the U.S. Uh, with a net worth, I would say, of, of over $500 million. So not bad for a girl who started out flipping burgers at Burger King. Um, their stories are important to show there's a saying, you can't be what you can't see, and, and really applies to women in these fields of um, where they're so underrepresented. And now you can see these women who did it. They're still in the game. Um, they love technology. They love venture capital. Not everything uh, is bad for women in Silicon Valley. They love, you know, what they do. So I think I think their stories again are relatable and are important. And too few story too few stories are written about women in these fields. And certainly, you know, there are these there are these great companies. Um, you know, from the ones I mentioned to Tesla, to F5, to Acme Packet, uh, to many more where there were key women or women playing really key roles behind the scenes. And so now their stories are starting to be told. Well, Julian, can you paint a picture for us of what the culture of specifically the workplace culture for Silicon Valley looked like and, and even some of, some of the challenges and obstacles that um, that that they had that the women had to face as as they were moving their way up or trying to move their way up in Silicon Valley 
Sure. Um, there are lots of great stories about this um, in Alpha Girls. But so starting with MJ, you know, and these women are different generations as well. So MJ came here first, that is to Northern California, Silicon Valley. And when she became the first, uh, one of the first women in the United States to make partner at a venture capital firm, she was 28 or 27, something, 27, 26, 27. Anyway, by the time she was 28, she had funded this particular entrepreneur who um, his company was doing very poorly. And then she finds out that he's sleeping with one of his employees and she ne- he needs to be fired. And so she had been the, the lead on the investment. And so it was her task to fire him. So she goes to meet with him and he's twice her age and this kind of swarthy European fellow. And, um, not that there's anything wrong with European fellows, but <laughs> he was he was of a particular type. And um, so MJ talks about the problems at the company and then says, you know, what she has heard uh, of the latest problem, which is unacceptable. And she gets right to it and says, you're fired. And he looks at her indignantly and says, I'm not going to be fired by a woman. And she is, you know, these women made really smart decisions. Here's just a little example. So instead of MJ getting all ruffled by this ridiculous remark, um, you know, ridiculous, sexist, whatever remark that I'm not going to be fired by a woman, she dealt with with it with humor. She looked to her right. She looked to her left. And she looked at him with a slight smile and just said, you're all I've got. You are fired. And so she used humor to diffuse what could have been potentially a a tense situation that could have escalated. Um, But that was, you know, that that was one thing in this mentality or just this kind of unknown because there were so few women in this industry. So the minute uh, the venture firm where MJ worked, and she had a great support network of of men at IVP, Institutional Venture Partners, and, and one of the founders of IVP, Reed Dennis, was really one of the founders of venture capital in Silicon Valley, was a super strong supporter of women, uh, even way back when. And so she had the benefit of that. But even that, when she would go into a board meeting, and she's a very attractive woman, and um, but when she first started out, you know, in her 20s, she would walk into a, a board meeting and she'd maybe wear, be wearing a dress or something. And and she was the only woman and all the men would comment, oh, nice dress, cute dress. Oh, you look great. And she didn't like that. And the reason was because it was distracting from her purpose for being there. And no one ever commented on, hey, great suit, great tie, you know, nice shoes to the guys. So she cut her hair. And she started wearing, um, you know, suits. She just didn't want the distraction to be there. And, you know, this may be, I don't know, this may sound controversial, but soon, you know, the men at her firm were calling her one of the guys. She took that, that not as a bad thing, but as she was a team player, that they accepted her as she was and that she fit in. And that was another thing that these women had in common. Um, But, you know, like Magdalena, when she starts working at a chip company, uh, she's fresh out of Stanford, electrical engineer. She's invited to this event in Hawaii and she's sitting there for breakfast and, and they're going to have the morning, you know, some sort of 
entertainment and she's thinking it's going to be a luau and it turns out to be a striptease and you know she's like what is going on and, and the next night though it was it escalated into like a pornographic show and this is a true story and you know there were hundreds of men around and she was one of the few women and so she had to make a decision in that moment does she say something or does she let it go and she was just so she's from Europe she had seen her share of you know bare breasts and all she was not a prude but this was like at a whole different level degrading and so she made a beeline to her boss and you know was very friendly but made it clear that you know that her issue was his issue and that she had felt like she was not a valued member of the the team and she was a newly hired hired engineer and is this how you know he wanted to treat a newly hired engineer um she made her point and he, the ceo even invited her to sit um at his table and after that, you know, at least while she was at the company, she didn't uh, she didn't know she didn't hear of any of these additional any additional uh, strip shows like this at sales conferences. And then there were times, though, later on when, you know, her male partners at USVP when it was all men and they'd be talking among themselves and maybe telling a joke that was off color or something but not offensive and she would let it go and i mean sometimes she you know she was laughing as hard as they were so it was knowing when to take issue and when not to take issue um should i i have one more example if we have time yeah go for it so then sonia perkins is another great story so sonia you know, this, um, she grew up in Charlottesville. She had skied maybe six times in her life with her church group. And she's a young partner at Menlo Ventures. And she's invited to this um, skiing boondoggle, not one in Hawaii, but skiing in Sun Valley by this legendary investment banker, Tom Weissel, and who was quite you know, is is a major, you know, major player in investment banking and was huge at the time. Anyway, so Sonia goes and she's sitting in the lodge. It's like noontime and she's feeling like, yay, my skiing is done for the day. And it was all investment bankers and venture capitalists. And she was one of the few women and up saunters Tom Weissel, you know, with his posse of guys and says, Sonia, I've signed you up. You're in the ski race. And she, you know, she's in that moment, she can she can decline she can say she has something to do but you know she realizes that you know all the guys are looking at her and this was a chance for her to network and so she finds herself up on this icy slope and they actually have the flags the shoots everything set up and she's literally competing against uh, former Olympic skiers and athletes and former Navy SEALs that Tom Weissel liked to recruit and turn into bankers. And, you know, Sonia was feeling very much like um, the Grinch's dog, Max, you know, in that moment when he's looking over the snowy precipice. And that's how Sonia felt that this was not going to end well. But she told herself to take it, you know, one flag, one step at a time, so to speak. And she made it to the bottom in one piece miraculously and she all the guys were giving her thumbs up and that night tom weissel invited her to sit at his table which was the coveted spot so sonia you know has this mentality that 
you can't win if you don't play the game. And I think for all of these women, they all have stories like that about really savvy decisions that they made um, to be a part of this team. And, you know, they could go, they, they went on to, um, to write their own rules later, but they had to learn along the way to, um, to, to fit in, to be a part of a team, to make it work, which again is a lesson for um, so many people, whether male, female, um, you know, minorities working in an industry that doesn't feel like you don't feel like you perfectly belong. And that's how these women felt and navigated very successfully. So what what would you say surprised you the most in 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 your research and doing these stories as well? I was really surprised by the ridiculous barriers that still exist for women because um, I had worked in journalism, as we said, when we, you know, as I said, when we started out our conversation today um, in journalism, in the newsroom, at least at the Chronicle, it was very much a meritocracy. And I didn't feel uh, held back in any way by being a woman, to be honest. And while I was not oblivious to what was going on in Silicon Valley and some other industries, I hadn't, I hadn't focused um, in such a way on this issue. So I started looking at the numbers, and that was glaring. You know, ninety. When I started my reporting on this book, ninety-four percent of all venture capitalists, the investing partners, were men, and only two percent of venture capital dollars went to firms started by women. So of the $130 billion deployed by venture capitalists last year, only 2.5 billion out of, again, out of that 130 billion uh, went to, to firms started by women. So I started looking at these numbers and I was, I was really stunned. And then just hearing their stories and hearing, you know, these women are the four primary characters, but there, I heard, I talked to so many women and I heard their stories too. And, um, and there are other stories, you know, about Silicon Valley being really awful to women. Um, I don't think it is as bad as the stereotype would suggest at all, because the, my book is about these women who love it and succeeded, um, but experienced some of that. So I would say though, that it's looking at the world today and seeing these disparities and seeing that these problems, these barriers for women very much exist. This is not a problem that we have worked through. And I think that, you know, that I talk with a lot of men, too, and men, you know, are being very candid with me and saying they're they're having a hard time knowing, like, can they open a door for a woman? Can they compliment her on her dress? Can they um, ask if she's going out for coffee? You know, can they ask her to bring one? Um, they don't want to have a closed door <clears throat> um, meeting with a woman, um, you know, which is taking it to another extreme. But mm -hmm. uh, so I hear I hear from both sides, but what struck me the most is is that these unnecessary barriers and biases exist, and women also sometimes hold themselves back. So this is not a aren't women great and men are terrible. That's not what this book is about, um, because there are a lot of great men in this book who were great allies, who were great leaders, who looked past gender. Um, and and the women made successful deals with too, where there were great working partnerships. Um, 
but it's you know it's interesting where we've gotten and how women can hold themselves back and there are stories about that in the book too you know based on our own sense of who does what say in a relationship and who steps back when you have kids um so there are lots of interesting and very textured uh, nuances to the story Mm -hmm. one other thing i want to ask you about is in in looking through all of these stories would you say that there's any common either actions or decisions or choices that they made that helped them move up or helped them succeed in spite of adversity? Um, I think it was, I think probably this, this is going to sound, um, I think this is a term that is oversimplified, but is actually very complex and that is good judgment. Um, these women had really good judgment. And, you know, where does that come from? You know, it's, it's one of those things you wish you could bottle, but they made super smart decisions, not always, um, but for the most part that helped them advance in their careers. Again, knowing when to take issue with something that, you know, that you find offensive and when to let it go, um, when to participate in a networking event and when you can decline, um, you know, the stories, the stories really bring to light those issues. And then also being really, really darn good at what they did. You know, these women had to be very quantitative women. You know, you hear about how are women heard at the table and that's a true issue and that's a relevant issue today. You know, if you're in a room full of men, how do you how can you make sure your voice is heard and my book is full of takeaways from that teresa gow was told early on a couple of things by um by older women one was don't take notes in meetings because then people will look to you as the note taker you're going to have to remember um what it is and the other was uh, a very successful female executive told Teresa, speak up early in a meeting if you want to be heard, because if you wait too long, you're going to become invisible. But when you speak up, make sure that you're quantitative, that you, you know, are, that you know your stuff, that you know the numbers, um, because women have to be even more quantitative, um, I think, than, than men. Um, so, so I, there, there are all sorts of, um, you know, strategies, but again, good judgment, really making those, those decisions around, um, you know, seemingly small things, but again, small, small victories that added up. Mm -hmm. So, uh, before we let you go, there's always a few questions that we love to ask all of our podcast guests. And the first one is what's one thing that is helping you either personally or professionally right now? Um, I think that is helping me. Well, you know, I'm really proud of this story and I'm excited that it's out in the world and people are talking about it and, and, reading about it and the feedback is really really great so 
that is super validating uh, for me, having spent a couple of years on this. So I would say that that is helping just to hear, you know, it's like you send your child off into the world and, you know, you want him or her to mm, uh, do things that make you proud. And in some way, I feel like, you know, the book is now out in the world and affecting people in different ways. So I think that that is a validation. My favorite, one of my favorite moments in this whole process is the day that I actually get um, the hardcover book shipped to me and I get to actually feel it and see it and hold it. And that's my favorite day, which, (laughs) you know, you start on a new journey of publicity, but that to me is like, wow, you know, you take something from nothing and you make something tangible and hopefully it, it has you know, we'll stand the test of time and be a little bit, you know, a little piece of immortality. So I don't know. I hope that answered the question. Yeah. And then just the last thing I want to ask you about is, is there any, any part of your book or your story or anything that we haven't talked about that uh, you would like to talk about? Um, I think that, uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I think that for women, the personal lives, you know, are intertwined with their work lives and the and the disproportionate amount of work that women do at home um, compared with their partners or spouses um, is a big issue. Um, so I think, you know, again, the personal and the professional for women, it's 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 tricky. It's complex um, to navigate all of that. So I know we I know we did touch on that, but that's a big part of the book and the story. Um, and then it's really what's happening in Silicon Valley today, and whether the situation has changed. And the women of my book are helping to really um, affect change in the industry and bring you know, men and women to the table and bring more women into this super dynamic industry that affects how we all live. And the women went from navigating to pioneering, and now they're writing their own rules. They're funding women founders at unprecedented levels. Um, So the potential for change is very, very real. And that's happening as we speak in Silicon Valley, uh, which is exciting. Well, Julian, I know that people are going to want to pick up the book and continue to find uh, the rest of your work and continue to learn from you. Where's the best place for them to go to do those things? Um, so, you know, online or, indep- you know, online uh, booksellers, independent bookstores. Of course, I love um, being a um, bibliophile. And yeah, and so if people, you know, if people buy the book, like the book, please post reviews on Amazon and Goodreads and all of that and tell your friends and and share on social media and reach out to me. Um, Also, the book is being adapted for a television series. So that is exciting and moving forward. And we'll have an announcement on where and when uh, in coming weeks. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for the great questions. Really enjoyed it. Well, hey, you know what they say, when the 
grown-ups are away, the children will play. And I feel like that's what has been going on all day today as Caleb is not here. However, I really enjoyed that conversation just because I, I, th- I love learning from other writers and other people who are really intentional about improving this, their sk- not only their skill, um, but also um, they've, they've really honed in something and, and crafted it into into something that 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 is is recognized by people right i mean she's winning awards and all sorts of stuff so i really love enjoying i really enjoy and love yeah that's what i was trying to say learning from somebody like that now if you are listening to this podcast and you're like hey these i don't know what's going on with these two but i definitely think that the guy who did the intro and outro today was uh pretty funny um well hey you have the opportunity to be able to tune in next week because you have the ability to subscribe to the podcast. It's totally free. Hit the subscribe button. Whichever podcast player you use, you can do that. You'll never miss another episode of me being goofy when Caleb is not available. Now, the other thing you can do is leave a rating and write a review. Please do that. It really helps us out. And it also gives us great feedback to be able to use to make this show even better just for you. Now, I have to sign off, so I get to say our, our our catchphrase as well as my catchphrase. And so, until next time, keep learning, keep growing, deuces, y'all. <laughs>